Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And we are so excited to be here today with Matt Bird, who um, I first heard on the podcast Narrative Breakdown. He was a repeat guest and um, just did fantastic, just had these great conversations um, on that podcast. Um, and then uh, he has a terrific blog, which is at secretsofstory.com. I mean, just a wealth of, of information, like a, a PhD in everything you need to know about story. And um, and and then that kind of, uh, I think I would that that evolved, that parts of that blog evolved into the book, The Secrets of Story, Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers, which was published by Writer's Digest Press in 2016. And he also um, makes his living giving notes so you can find out more about that service and, um, as he says, get caught up on eight years of writing advice at secretsofstory.com. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Welcome. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So briefly, we, we start with what we're working on, and we'll start with us, because if we start with you, we'll, we'll never want to come back to us. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, but I will, so I will just say that I'm um, between projects, so I'm kind of approaching something new. And what I've been starting to do is just free write in scene. And, um, and that's been really fun, actually. So I, I have a theory that you have to do what you do if you want to be efficient at writing, you just have to do what you do and make your mistakes faster um, and sooner. So I'm trying to do that. Um, so that's that's my plan. <laughs> How about you, Ange? Uh, still uh, working on that wrap-up of the edit for the film. Right. And um, actually looking at sort of creativity workflows right now. Yeah, as you were last week. Yeah. <laughs> and Matt, what are you working on right now? Uh, you know, I'm tinkering around with ideas for the next book. I uh, have been doing a lot of work on the blog. I've been doing uh, something on the blog that I've been enjoying called The Annotation Project, where I'll go through the first 20 pages of a novel and annotate sort of like I do on my note service. I'll go ahead and do several annotations per page and talk about how it's doing what it's doing and how what you can learn about writing from these manuscripts, you know, tend to be famous manuscripts. and that's been a lot of fun, and I think that might be the basis of the next book. We'll see. Ooh. Now, you had that going. You did a Game of Thrones series, I think. Yes. And so I, I was impressed with the, you know, I didn't didn't get sucked into the show, but you did the work on the, on the books and sort of why it works, even though maybe it doesn't meet all of the expectations or the meet all the rules kind of thing. Yeah, well, I talked about how it's sort of the ultimate example of what I talk about in my book, how you have to be able to write a story that's good enough even for people who don't want your story. Yeah. And this is the ultimate example of that because I had given up on the show and I sort of like I had to read the book for this series and I had no interest in reading this book. And it was so well written that I got sucked into reading it and really loving it, even though I you know, was really sort of repulsed by Martin's worldview. <laughs> and I, you know, and so I was very much sucked into this masochistic relationship with the text but it was a thrilling masochistic relationship because the book is so well written that I uh, I could not stop reading it. So it you, was I what, learned a what, lot from looking at it. What what like well written in what way? What were the things that made you not be able to stop reading it? I think it's just the very basic nuts and bolts of novel writing. I think it's perspective, it's intimacy. I think that's his number one strength as a writer is intimacy. He puts you inside a head and he gives you all five senses. You know, this is very basic nuts and bolts of writing, sensory writing, 
strict limited POV and and tremendous amount of sense of danger, sense of of suspense that you're just you're really sucked in. And for me, I wasn't I shouldn't have even been feeling any suspense because I'd already seen a 10 hour adaptation of the first book. So I already <laughs> literally knew everything that was going to happen. I shouldn't have had any sense of like, oh, I better keep flipping pages if I know what's going to happen. But I did. I totally got sucked in, even though I, I literally knew everything that was going to happen already. And he just, you know, it's just the very simple thing. There's a line in the opening pages where someone's about to be killed and said, for a moment, he allowed himself to hope. And that is, you know, that line always works as a novelist. <laughs> if you include the line right before something bad happens to somebody, for a moment he allowed himself to hope. That's the sort of emotional up and down that we want from writing and from reading mm -hmm. is we want to go like, oh, I'm daring to hope. Oh, and now I'm having my hopes dashed. That is so much of the appeal of reading is the feeling that you have hopes and then your hopes are dashed. You have this up and down and that's what we look for and when we read, we look for up and down. It's interesting that you mention intimacy because I think one of the comments I read was that he had 4,000, he had like 20 horsemen go out to do, yes. you know, and so, um, and so that names became an issue. Like there were just so many names and like here's a line of dialogue from someone who will never show up again. Um, and so how did intimacy work through that? It's, yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of elements of the book that would seem to counteract intimacy. There is a lot of, you know, and I talk about how ultimately there was a sense of warmth from the book that I really enjoyed, but it could not be a more cold book. Like, you know, winter is coming is the theme of the book. It begins with ice zombies killing people with cold powers and everybody is so mean to each other. Everybody is just awful to each other. It is cold in every possible sense of the word. And yet when you read it, you get this odd sense of warmth. And likewise, it shouldn't have the sense of intimacy because you have this incredibly vast canvas and you keep being yanked away from the hero just as you're interested in what that hero is doing. And you're not even told who to care about and you're not sure how you could possibly care about these eight different narrators, many of whom are in opposition to each other. And yet at any given point, you are intensely in one person's head and you feel the warmth of intimacy that you are sharing with that one person at that one time. And then when you jump into another narrator's head, it's alienating, it's discombobulating, and yet you so quickly get accustomed to and acclimatized to the next person's head that there's a certain, even though I find the books have a certainly anti-humanist strain to them, and the books you know, are very sort of harsh against the idea of compassion, there is something inherently humanistic that we love about feeling intensely, intimately bonded to one character and then jumping to another character who is in opposition to that character and intimately, intensely bonding to that character. And that alone says something very humanistic about mankind uh, or humankind that, oh, you know, you can genuinely see two different points of view and fully identify with each. And that shows you that everybody, that each you know, each person is a hero in their own mind. Each person is a fully human human being, even if other people don't see them that way. So you are so, you know, insightful about structure and, um, and story and what works. How does that, how do you take that into your own work? I mean, and especially like in your initial process of what do you love? What are you drawn to? You know, your ideas, when does that set of knowledge sort of, when and how does it come into play? Well, it's very tricky because I talk about in the book how, 
you know, the last thing you want to do is go like, okay, I've, I've, well, first of all, the last thing you want to do is I'm going to start with a checklist and use the checklist to generate a book. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to come up with a story that fits these 122 questions. That's something you don't want to do. You also don't want to come up with ideas and instantly go like, oh, you know, I just came up with an idea, but it doesn't match question number 111. So, so much for that idea. I'm tossing that one out. And so, you know, and one of my big fears when I wrote this book is that it might inhibit somebody's process, which is the last thing I want to do. But one thing I talk about is that, so I made sure to sort of wrap up the book by saying that, you know, do not use these as rules as you write and do not use these as guidelines of how to write. The only way the book is useful is if you don't treat them as rules, is if you treat them as beliefs. And you have to get to the point where you just have an instinctive sense when you come up with a new idea of, oh, I just came up with a great idea. And it's like going, eh, but I can't really connect to the character. Like, I'm not intimately bonded to that character. You know, maybe that's not such a good idea. And then you're like, and then one day, the whole goal is that one day then something will occur to you and go like, wow, that's a good idea. And I know it's a good idea because, wow, I really understand this character and I really love this character and I really know how to make the audience love this character. And that's my whole sort of goal with my book is to get people to you know, have to recognize great ideas when they have them, not to shut down ideas that may not be as good, not to prescribe how to come up with an idea, not to prescribe, you know, the, the limited path to the future, but to say, wow, you know, now that's a good idea. Now that I know is a great idea now that I've had it and I'm looking forward to writing that one. I just heard Karen Joy Fowler, actually it's an old podcast, but I was just listening to it and she was saying that there were, she's written many books and twice can can she sort of tell a story of when the idea flashed on her and she knew that was the thing and there are her two big books. One is the Jane Austen book club and one is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which was shortlisted for the man booker and anyway, so it's just interesting that idea, like when you, you know, and she writes other books that don't come to her in a brilliant flash, but those were probably her biggest books. So. And that's fine too. You know, you can find what, you can find the value in a story. You can go like, I think this is good. I'm not sure if it's good. Let me mess with it. Let me futz with it. And eventually I'll find an intimate, intense, emotional connection to this character. You know, don't go like, you know, like, oh, you know, like, oh, I can't you know, I'm not falling in love right away. It's like anything in life. You know, if you expect everything to be a bolt of lightning, you'll never get anything done. You know, you can, uh, you can do the work, but you know, you definitely have to eventually have that spark and, you know, you should avoid, you know, devoting too much time to projects in which, you know, you're taking the attitude of, well, I may not love this character, but I can force the audience to love this character. <laughs> like, no, you have to, you know, the only way to get an audience to love a character is if you love that character yourself. And I would also say, like, with checklists, I do a lot of... I used to be a complete intuitive writer. And then Mm -hmm. I took a screenwriting program. And Mm -hmm. now I actually look at some of the story development processes that I learned, not so much as, like, a checklist, but looking at them as ways to sort of front load my intuition. And I think that there are ways that looking at a checklist like yours, if it isn't hitting those things, giving yourself the opportunity to just brainstorm around them and not Mm -hmm. can open up a lot of other opportunities um, for the thinking. Because I just, you know, stories are webs, right? They're just these systems in this other way. 
So if you have an opportunity to go deeply into one area, it can help you make connections in other areas. And I feel like a checklist like yours can be hugely useful in just initiating some brainstorming sessions. Right. The only real reason my book is in checklist form is not to go like, you know, oh, my score was 117. <laughs> the only reason it's in that form is to make it easier to read. And I wanted to have a book that people could skip around and mm-hmm. go like, oh, you know, I don't know if I agree with this idea. Let me flip forward a couple of pages and get to the next idea. And, you know, I just like having that little check icon to let you know, oh, you know, new idea, you know, feel free to skip the last one, move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that was my goal. The last thing I want to do is. I don't know if you guys read this book. I actually was just recommending this book to somebody. I realize we're on an audio podcast, so no one will be able to see it, but I'm going to hold up the... It'll be in the show notes. Um, it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> Have you guys ever read this this novel, which is called How I Became a Famous Novelist by Steve Healy? No. I cannot recommend it highly enough. As a novelist, uh, as novelist, this is you know just the funniest book on, uh, on writing. And it's... Uh, at one point, I felt very self-conscious while I was reading it because it's about someone who is invited to his high school reunion and realizes he said nothing with his life, decides to become a famous best-selling novelist, does a systematic study of every best-selling book, and comes up with the one scientific formula for writing the most cynical possible best-selling book. Uh, does it, succeeds, and but so as he's trying to get published, he sends it to one of his friends in the publishing world in New York, and she says, oh, thank you so much for letting me look at this manuscript. Thank you so much for sending this to me. And he's like, oh, you love it? And she goes like, oh, no, it's terrible. But my bosses here at the publishing company have given us a checklist of everything a manuscript is supposed to do. And your manuscript is the first one I ever got that crosses, that checks every single spot on the checklist so I can finally make my boss happy. But no, it's terrible. Don't get me wrong. It's terrible. But it's great. It checks off everything on the checklist. And of course, I read that and it's like, oh, no, I have a checklist. And the last thing I want is for this situation to come into being. That's really funny. There's a, there is a podcast called like The Bestseller Code where they tried yes. to do that. And mm-hmm. they, I think they purport to have succeeded, but I haven't. You know what? They're going to have AI on it right now. I'm sure. AI? I mean, artificial intelligence, oh, right? Like so writing then, a novel. Yeah, I mean, they're already doing. We're all going to get replaced reading. by robots. Yes, <laughs> basically. Um, That'll be relaxing. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so you know, I was mentioning earlier. I had sort of a question about irony, and just so you know, I the way I learn things is by fighting with them. So be prepared. Um, (laughs) So, you know, as I was thinking about your definition of irony in the book, which was sort of the greatest gap between expectation and reality, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was thinking about different things. At what point, you know, is 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 there too much or can there be too much or is there like uh, some level of higher quality irony versus um, sort of a cheap irony so yes certainly you know it's funny because I talk a lot about irony in my book and I talk about all the different types of irony you should have and I go through like 13 ironies that you need to have you know and often in like every scene you know every scene could have an ironic expectation for the scene where the you know where someone's he dared to hope anytime where someone is saying you know like oh I really know what's going to happen in the scene I know what's going to happen when I pitch this product in this board meeting I know what's going to happen here and then ironically their expectation is completely different from the outcome and they get totally upended and that's the sort of irony a book should be packed with but 
at the same time, if somebody tells me, oh, I've written this novel and it's great because it's so ironic, I've written a really ironic novel, even though in my book I say, you know, great, your book should be packed with irony, I am, when somebody tells me I've written something really ironic, I'm going to go like, oh, I'm probably not going to enjoy that. And the reason why is that the way people, when, when people say irony, when they say, oh, you know, you strike me as a really ironic person, or this is a very ironic novel, then it's the one bad type of irony tends to be what they're talking about, which is <laughs> ironic tone, which is a gap between what your previous expectations were and what this thing is delivering. This gap between basically an expectation that something will have meaning or sincerity to it, and then we upend this idea, and no, it, there is no meaning, there is no sincerity, it's sarcastic. And that tends to be, you know, when people talk about the 90s as the irony decade, or when they talk about like, oh, in the 90s you had Nirvana and music, and you had The Simpsons on TV, and you had Seinfeld uh, on, and Alanis uh, Morissette. Also on TV. Hmm? And, and Alanis, Alanis Morissette. Morissette. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then, you know, then they're talking about generally the bad type of irony. They're talking about, you know, even though those are great, even though I love Nirvana and The Simpsons and Seinfeld, uh, they were walking a very, very tricky line and they were doing mm -hmm. something that most people should not do, which is, you know, taking a sort of antagonistic relationship to the audience and going like, oh, we know what you want. We're not going to give it to you. We're going to we're going to take the piss. We're going to be we're going to, um, you know, sort of roll our eyes at what you want, what you expect. No hugging, no learning, as they said on Seinfeld. And, you know, I think there are so many other types of irony, which are so much more valuable and useful for a writer uh, that people get distracted by this thought of like, oh, you know, it's very ironic. Like, oh, there's that's good. There's a lot of irony as long as it's not alienating irony, which is something that can be done and can work well, but is not something that most writers should do most of the time. Do you think the equivalent in this decade is sort of this, the rash of unreliable narrators? Uh, you know, I think that, I think it, if people still expected narrators to be reliable, then that would still be ironic. Like, oh, ironically, it's an unreliable narrator. But I think at this point, you would have to be a fool to start reading a novel and expect the narrator to be ironic because I uh, expect the narrator to be reliable because every single narrator in every book these days is an unreliable narrator. So I so think the that the irony no would be sincerity. Hmm? Irony would be sincerity. Kind yes, of. irony. That would be that would be ironic <laughs> if it was uh, if it was sincere. Um, I talk about that when I when I talk about the movie The Fighter, which I was a big fan of, and how you know it's ironic at the end that the two brothers reconcile, and then they're as they're going into the ring, as the one brother who's a boxer is going into the ring with the other brother as his trainer, they're playing White Snakes. Here I go again on my own, uh, going down the only road I've ever known, like a drifter. I was born to walk alone, and I talk about how ironic that is on several levels, like you know that oh they finally bonded, and but. They're, you know, but they bond over this song about how you have to be alone and you have to walk the road alone. And I talk about how ultimately it's ironic in that you have a movie that is playing White Snake in a non-ironic way, and that is <laughs> ironic. <laughs> that, that you can have a great filmmaker making a great film using this extremely cheesy song in this non-ironic way, um, in this non-sarcastic uh, way. And in this day and age, that alone is uh, is a wonderfully ironic thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? I was I'm I'm working up some classes about uh, somebody. One of my students asked me about thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and yes. so I work. And you know, the way I do my classes is I look in look for specific examples, and then we kind of imitate them, but we're using our own material. And so I was looking into these, and, and I started thinking like this is this is 
sort of irony, right? There's like the expectation and then this unexpected oppositional reality and then somehow moving towards the synthesis between those two. Yes. Oh, definitely. Like that's, you know, if you don't have opposition, you know, Hegel is the original story guru. Like he's sort of the great unacknowledged story guru. I've always thought that. that, (laughs) Yes, you have to have, you have to have, uh, um, this sort of synthesis and you know it's terrible if you have a thesis with no antithesis uh, can result in a very bad story and but it's also a very weak story is thesis antithesis return to the thesis where if you mm-hmm. don't have an ending that synthesizes the thesis and the antithesis in which the hero ends up back where they started you know or if it's a book that's thesis antithesis antithesis <laughs> where the uh, where there's no resolution in which the hero comes to grips with the antithesis, comes to grips with the opposition, and you know the opposition just wins, which one could argue eventually happens with Game of Thrones. <laughs> that you know the bad guys just get shuffled off this mortal coil without ever uh, without ever positively affecting anything. What about Chinatown? China, you know, it's uh, I spent I spent a lot of time on Chinatown on the blog, and you can check it out. Chinatown is you know, a dangerous movie in that it's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, if Chinatown got away with it, I can get away with it. Like, it's, uh, you know, it's very, I think whenever you find a movie like that that seems to break all the rules that, you know, in that case, you know, seems to just end with the hero being obliterated and in no way uh, positively affecting the story, you know, the thing that you always find is that it wasn't true in the script and that this wasn't a case where somebody said, I'm going to write a script and it's gonna blow away everybody's narrative expectations and it's gonna become a classic. What somebody did was they wrote a traditional script in which you know the hero more traditionally won and then they were on set and they realized like, you know what? We can just screw with it. We can just screw up everything here <laughs> and we can go ahead and just end this at the point where we're not supposed to end the movie. And they did it because they knew they were making something that was so good that they could get away with breaking the rules. But this wasn't a case where they set out to break the rules in the first place. Interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. Um, so do you think that, 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 that in a way that's sort of p- part of the checklist is like it gives you a starting point, a structure that's, you know, that's traditional. And then as you're executing it, which may be in the case of novel writing, writing it by yourself in your little cafe, um, <laughs> you know, that, that you then can, can start breaking those rules. Well, yeah, I talk about this a lot in the annotation project is that, you know, the what I talk about in the book is these sort of 122 questions is these are things that are narrative expectations on the part of the reader. Some of them are expectations that the reader is aware of, that the reader is aware they want from you as a writer. And some of them are things that the reader is not aware that they want from you as a writer. And some of them are things that you are aware as a novelist that you are trying that you it's your job to deliver them. And some of them you may not be aware until you read this book that it's your job to deliver these things. But, you know, all that means is that the audience will have a certain expectation that this will happen. And then when you deny it, when you pull it away, then the audience will be brought up short. Now, in a lot of times, that's exactly what you want. If you are aware that the audience has an expectation and you're aware that the audience will expect you to do a certain thing and then you're like, okay, that's great. That means I have them where I want them and I can go ahead and play with them and taunt them, then that that can make an audience very happy. 
an audience if the writer is taunting their expectations and the writer knows what they're doing the writer knows they have this expectation and the writer is using that as a valuable thing like great my my reader has this expectation therefore i can taunt them and tease them and and dangle it and yank it away and then that can be very enjoyable for both parties the writer can enjoy doing that the reader can enjoy being taunted and teased as long as the writer isn't just going like Oh, what? A reader expects me to do what? I didn't know that. Like, you know, I thought I could just get away with not doing that. Like, no, you can't just get away with not doing it, but you can't choose not to do it. Well, I think also, though, with irony, you need a resonant difference of, you know, expectation. Otherwise, yes. you're in the theater of the absurd, right? So, <laughs> um, yes. and I think that's just, you know, what is meaningful around the, what around that expectation and what will meaningfully, because otherwise you could throw random things just all over. And that's what I was talking about, quality of irony. was sort of, you know. Yeah, I talk about how there's defying expectations and then there's upsetting expectations. How, you know, I really, ideally, you don't want to just defy the the reader's expectations you want to upset the reader's expectations that's what that's where real irony comes in as opposed to you know i i talk about like you know like oh i wouldn't expect there to be an asian american uh basketball star and then there is one and you're like okay well that you know that defied my expectations but it didn't upset my expectations because i wasn't really invested in the idea of there never being an asian american <laughs> basketball star i wasn't you know i wasn't you know i wasn't banking on that i wasn't assuring people assuring my friends it would never happen and, you know, really, it's that moment of like, oh, I'm really, you know, feeling invested or smugly proud of or in any way, you know, you know, self-assured about the fact that this will never happen. And then when that gets upset, that's where meaning comes from. That's mm -hmm. what makes things really meaningful in a story is if, you know, the easiest thing to do as a writer and one of the best things to do is to just begin uh, before every scene, you have a little mini scene in which the in which you have one of the characters prepping for the scene and going like, I know exactly how this is going to go. I know exactly what the other person is going to say. I this is going to finally make me happy. This is going to be so good. And then it doesn't happen. And that is the sort of, as I was talking about, the sort of intense intimacy that George R. R. Martin is so good at creating. This sense of oh. The, I'm getting my hopes up. The the hero is getting his hopes up. I'm getting my hopes up. I'm really investing. I really want to see a certain thing happen. And then, of course, Martin is the ultimate expert at you know just twisting the knife and and you know completely denying us uh, everything that he's you know getting our hopes up that something will happen and then disaster strikes instead. I, I've been thinking that you know. Uh... Story. Well, Lisa Cron, you know, Lisa Cron, she did Wired for Story. And um, what's the other one? It'll be in the show notes. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with her. No, I don't. Um, but anyway, she, she sort of talks about oh, why we're wired, like neurologically wired for story. And kind of springing off of that, I've been thinking especially about this idea of facing the unexpected and that, and that story kind of helps us. Deal, yeah, rehearse and kind of grapple with the fact that, you know, that um, that we have to, you know, that we don't know what's going to happen, and that that and that it's always shocking, even even the things that really happen over and over again to everybody. Somehow, I mean, we simultaneously seem to keep them secret. Like culturally, there are a lot of things we keep secret, like that people have miscarriages or that people die, or, yeah. you know, things like that. And then, but then they happen and we're surprised and I don't know. So I guess I'm just thinking about the purpose of story and why story exists. And I don't, if you have any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that I think that story, you know, we tell each other stories that teach each other how to solve problems. And that, you know, every story, you know, the strongest stories are about one person solving one problem, even if they're about, you know, the world's most epic story. Then even when you read A Game of Thrones, each individual moment, you're with one person trying to solve one problem. And then you're, he takes this extra degree of difficulty where he jumps from person to person then. But that still, even this book has the same heart of story that all great stories have at their heart, which is, you know, I am coming to this book because I am a human being who is struggling and is trying to solve the problems in my life. And I'm looking to identify with other people who are struggling to solve problems. And ultimately, I want to take, I want to take problem solving advice from them. I want to see... You know, I talk about how structure is a lot of people are like, oh, you know, here's structure based off reading 500 stories and boiling down the mathematics of how they solved problems. And I talk about if you want to know how to structure a story, all you have to do is look at your own life when you have had to tackle large problems and look at the structure, look at the steps and missteps you went through when solving a large problem in your own life. And then you'll find that you'll come up with about 14 steps that exactly match almost every great story you've ever read that storytelling is about human nature. I'm going to about... <laughs> challenge that. We've all been at the party where someone's like, and then let me tell you about the toaster I bought before I got in the taxi. And you're like, what yes. does the toaster have to do with anything? But the post <laughs> toaster feels really important to that person. So there are people and there are times, sometimes I'm that person where that random like detail isn't relevant but feels like it needs to be part of the story and I think you do talk a little bit about like the story versus backstory right and having your characters are you speaking up in defense of the toaster or are you I am saying I'm disagreeing that if you look at your own life and you come up with 14 Uh like you'll come up because a lot of people I don't know have messy thinking so that just sounds really neat to me and so (laughs) But if you look at 10 large problems that have happened to you and figure out the steps and missteps each one had in common, then you will factor out the toasters. And then you'll go like, oh, I see. You know, in that one story, it seemed like the toaster was very significant. But when I compare it to all these other things that have happened to me, I see that what it had in common with those other stories had nothing to do with the toaster, that it had to do with, oh, here are the steps and missteps I tended to go through. And I think that we read stories because we want to... realize a we want to learn what the steps we should take are to solve large problems and we also want comfort in seeing that the missteps we take in solving large problems are common that you know that's why nobody wants to read a story in which you know everything comes together like clockwork i had a friend who was assigned to write the movie adaptation of the heinlein novel the moon is a harsh mistress uh which is a great novel and i'm a big fan of it but it's a rare story in which nothing goes wrong for the heroes. Like they come up with a master plan on page one and then they execute it flawlessly and then the book ends. And <laughs> why does it work? Why does it work? Well, first I'll talk about why it shouldn't okay. work. It shouldn't work because when we read, you know, we want to go like, oh, this is how problems are solved. Yes, this is how I should be solving my problems in real life. And it's like, oh, that's exactly what happens to my problems. Is That's what goes wrong. These are the missteps. This is what I'm identifying with in this book even more than the problem solving. I'm identifying with the, the mistakes and the problem, uh, the places where you don't solve the problem. You know, in terms of why Heinlein is able to get away with it, it's just he's just extremely clever. It's just an extremely clever book. It's got wonderful big ideas in it. It's got, you know, sort of thinly sketched characters who don't go on great growth arcs, uh, but 
they exist in this you know fascinating future world with a lot of details it's hard science fiction it's uh is there any is there any moment where you would not absolutely believe that that was going to be the outcome my guess would be if there's that's the key missing piece for a lot of it is that there's no sense of risk or real consequence those that's when those kinds of stories fall harder well, yeah, and part of it is that he's using, he's putting us in an information inferior position, mm-hmm. which means that they have a plan, but we don't always know their plan. So a lot of the suspense in the book comes from not going, oh, I know that plan will it work, or, you know, oh, no, something's gone wrong with their plan. Instead, it just comes like, what are they doing? What are my heroes doing? They're so far ahead of me. Uh, what is their plan? And then it's only when the plan comes together that you're like, oh, I see what they were doing. And mm-hmm. so that's a completely different type of suspense than the suspense where you're on the hero's shoulder and know what they're doing and and seeing ways in which it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Instead, this is, you know, I'm not on the hero's shoulder. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what could go wrong. I don't know what can go right. I only know what they're doing when it succeeds, which is a perfectly valid type of suspense. But you were saying your friend was writing the screenplay. How did that go? Well, you've never seen the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, uh, I, I lost, uh, I lost contact with the guy and, uh, I know that, uh, but I know how these things go and, uh, I know, uh, uh, somehow, you know, they've, they're since been other, you know, that adaptation died and since they've announced other adaptations with other writers attached, uh, mm-hmm. which is how things go. And, uh, I, I wish everybody the best of luck <laughs> adapting that into a, uh, movie. Although these days, you know, we all know it's going to get turned into it. 10-part TV show instead, so I wish uh, whatever writer luck with doing that. Before we do Steal This, and I know we need to wrap up, but I just, I'm just curious, um, like, what what kind of stories you like to write? I like to write the sort of stories I should not be writing, which I think is something I have in common with most writers. You know, I have all these, you know, I, more than, more than most writers, because I've written a book on it, you know, have a sense of like, these are the sorts of stories you should tell, or these are the sorts of stories you should not tell. And then I'll get an idea, you know, I get these emails from writers who have read my book, and they're like, can I get a special dispensation from you to do something that does not match what's in your book? You know, can I go ahead, can I get permission from you to break one of your rules? And uh. I'm always like, yes, of course you can. This is, you know, the last thing I want is to, is to tell people they can't write what they want to write. Because, of course, I break my own rules all the time. Uh, my most recent thing that I wrote uh, in terms of not uh, the sort of advice I write uh, is I wrote a play uh, that was... You know, I talk about how Martin uh, in A Game of Thrones is not at all writing what he knows, as opposed to Tolkien, who was writing about his own culture and his own, you know, rich cultural history. Uh, how Martin, you know, grew up in a housing project in New Jersey mm. uh, of mostly Italian ancestry, and he's writing, you know, this very, very, very British book, even though it's set in another world. It's a very British book, and you know how he's not writing what he knows. But I tend to not do that either. And Two of my most successful projects were both set in England, where I've never lived, and I'm not even much of an Anglophile. I'm not someone who it's like, oh, I know all the details of Jane Austen's life or anything like that. But I just happen to find great stories, and I wrote a play about the Shakespeare forgeries of 1795, and I'm I'm very happy with it. That's the most recent thing I've written, and we'll see what happens with it. But uh, I, uh, you know, it could not be further divorced from my own life experience. I say that, but of course I found a way into the story. I found a way to, um, but even then it's, you know, the emotional heart of the story is a guy with an unloving dad and I didn't have an unloving dad, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, uh, but I think we all can identify with that. 
and we've all uh, felt disapproved. I say in my book that the most universal emotion of all is feeling misunderstood. And this is certainly, I've certainly felt misunderstood a lot in my life, and this is about a hero who is very misunderstood, in this case, by his family. And, uh, you know, even though I was writing, even though I had to do just an insane amount of research, uh, and uh, I know it was, but that's something you, uh, you yourself have done for uh, some of your novels. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just, uh, you just do the work. And then once you've done the work, you can write about anything you want to write about if you uh, really learn the language and really learn the, uh, every aspect of the culture and the context. And then you find some universal bit of emotion that you do identify with, and that's what I've been doing. I love that. That's great. Thank you. Um, okay, so our last segment is Steal This. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. He wasn't the first one to say it. Uh, what? In fact, he stole it. He stole it. He stole it. Uh, <laughs> so we like to look at things we've stumbled across, read, watched, whatever, that we would like to take and make our own. So um, do you want to start? You want me to sure. Start? Can, whatever you want. All right, I'll start. I've been looking at um, design thinking. And then, you know, obviously it's this process that you kind of go through and can be circular, or linear, or whatever. But one of the main things that I'm always... Is this like graphic design? No, it's actually where you come... You, you, you start by empathizing with either a client who wants to have something made or created or whatever. Um, and then you go from there, you make sort of define. But the empathy piece, I was interested to think about how that would actually apply when we think about like writing genre fiction, right? What does your mm -hmm. reader actually want? What, what is it that they're doing, hoping to have? And, you know, it's interesting when we talk about what does story do, right? Mm -hmm. Why do we have story? What are the reasons? You know, and sometimes it's just straight up entertainment. Sometimes it's, you know, chilling surprise or whatever. But I think like taking a moment to actually empathize and think about the consumer of your work. At, mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes we do so much writing for ourselves. Do we? Mm -hmm. And, um, well, you don't. Which is fine. Yes. But I do think that there's a moment when you're about to sort of start defining maybe your revision process or something like that where you're thinking about that consumer in a different way mm -hmm. of who will be getting it and what you want them to get from that process in a more concrete way all right design process empathy, empathy. all right uh well i um am re actually reading uh in succession the the two books of my friend Sari prince halverson um and um and, you know, she's sort of a best-selling author type of person. <laughs> anyway, but what she's really good at is, um, is complicating a situation to the point where, like, the kind of the, – the thing you think you're driving – towards the, the kind of happy ending or the, the easy landing uh, that you know you see them struggling for it but it, you at some point you get you realize it, it can't go there like she's complicated it enough that that the thing you think they're gonna f struggle t through to can't be the ending right it, it, it can't land there and um and I think that's you know that's really smart like it's and it's and it's and I think it takes courage in a way to kind of um, you know, she like I'm in the middle middle of this book, and she just had the character, you know, it, be thrown into crisis, needing to demonstrate that she's a competent parent. Like that's what she most has to do, and she like 
has an anxiety attack and starts taking too many Xanax and like sleeps through the day with her young kids around and you know who she's about to lose. Anyway, it's just like, and you're just like, it's just like the worst possible thing she could do. And yet she's still going to get up and fight and do the next thing. But it's like, so it's just, it's just that daring to like really make your characters flawed and make them suffer the consequences. And sometimes I think I'm, I, I, I don't, I don't want to hurt my characters as much as stories have to hurt them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, you guys froze for a second on my end. Oh. Um, oh. Uh oh. Uh, well, did you get the gist of that? Yes, I. I heard. Uh, I think I heard it all. <laughs> all right. So, how about you, Matt? Well, I. I had thought about this in advance, and then I used up some of the material I was thinking about <laughs> over the course of the show. But uh, you know, so I'll go ahead and give you a preview of the next book I'm doing for the annotation project, which is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think I may do another one before it, but uh, that's what I'm working on, and. You know, which is also a book that breaks every possible rule, you know, certainly in terms of uh, providing a satisfactory ending and certainly in terms of uh, of uh, a lot of character work that it could be doing. And but it's a book that just the language is just so wonderful. And I'm really trying to get to the root of, you know, it's a book that I don't think of having anything in common with the Game of Thrones, but turns out to have a lot in common with Game of Thrones and that they both defy rules that they should not be able to get away with defying and they both do it because of the warmth that the language creates uh even though in both cases you know it's a very uh you know gallows humor sort of world you know you have uh, all the heroes get killed off in game of thrones and the entire world gets blown up in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy but you know really i think that the moment everybody falls in love with this book is it says you know alien ships are coming to destroy you it's like the giant ships hug in the sky in much the way that bricks don't <laughs> and I feel like that is you know, who who could not love that line? Who could not love that sort of you know? And it's you know I talk about I'm giving somebody notes right now on their book and I'm going like you know or on their TV pilot and I'm going like you are putting yourself too much in opposition to your reader, uh, the person who's going to be reading this pilot, and then eventually the people who are going to be watching this pilot. You know you are just being too antagonistic to us. You're taking our expectations and you're you're just refusing to meet them in a way that feels willful in a way that feels abusive in a way that feels like you know like instead of feeling like i'm being played with by you know a sort of master taunter i feel like i'm just being dicked around by uh <laughs> by someone who does not is not willing to create a full level of trust between myself and uh the author and adams just does not do that adams does douglas adams who wrote hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy just does the exact opposite and you know, there is a certain level of antagonism in that line, like hung there in much the way that bricks don't, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, we are, you know, they're like, you know, I'm going to start the sentence in a way that is going to create a certain expectation of how it's going to end. And then I'm going to, you know, just, you know, just take the piss, I'm going to just, uh, just completely knock the wind out of your sails and uh, knock the wind out of this sentence. And you love it, you just love it. Everybody loves reading that sentence. And I'm, as I'm reading, uh, as it turns out, I'm doing two books in a row that break most of the rules and trying to figure out how to get away with it. And I think that sentence is my way into this book mm -hmm. and figuring out how that sentence delights us in the way it upsets our expectations. I so love that. I'm... And you know, it's interesting because you, you talked about um, the difference between defying expectations and upsetting expectations. And I think that might be true for the rules, right? That you're not just randomly defying the rules. These books are are breaking 
the rules, you know, um, they're yes. upsetting the rules in a way that's that's more emotionally engaged with them mm-hmm. in, in a way. Right? So you don't actually need a checklist. You just like need one, like, don't dick around with people. Just. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the <laughs> cliff notes. Yeah. Don't be antagonistic. You know, well, even then, I wouldn't say don't be antagonistic. Like, yes. don't be, you know, don't be antagonistic in a way that makes you seem like a dick. Don't be antagonistic um, in a way that makes you feel like you don't care about your reader. Be antagonistic in a way that makes the reader feel very cared about. That, you know, goes like, oh, the game is afoot. You know, me and this author are, are sparring with each other and, and he or she is taunting me in a way that is, uh, that is you know, much, you know, much as in, in real life. I, I mean, I talk about with Martin how, you know, he is being a, mas- he is being a sadist in a way that triggers a certain pleasurable masochism on the part of the reader. You know, Mazok, certainly, you know, Mr. Mazok, Mr. I forget his, his full name, something, something, duh, something, dash Mazok. Um, Tim. You know, <laughs> yes, Tim really <laughs> enjoyed his masochism. And if you're going to be a sadist to your reader, you have to know how to be a sadist in a way where the reader is going to have a, a pleasurable masochism. Mm. And that is what Mark does, and uh, even to a certain extent, what Adam says. I think pleasurable yeah. masochism might have to be the title of the podcast, of this episode. No, but with no explicit label on it. It's going to be confusing, but it'll be good. We'll set up expectations. We'll get a lot of new, and then uh, well, there'll new, be a gap. new listeners, yes. too, <laughs> who will be perhaps disappointed. But anyway, um, Matt, is there any uh, place you want people to go find you and your work? Uh, go to secretsofstory.com and you'll find I've been running a blog there for eight years. It was originally called Cockeyed Caravan. Now it's called uh, Secrets of Story to uh, bring it in line with the book. And But you'll find uh, my first post was on January 1st, 2010. It was a New Year's resolution. And then I have kept going ever since. And I've got a tremendous amount of writing advice there. Of course, first and foremost, uh, I don't get any money when you go to my blog. So why don't let's get some actual money flowing here and go out and buy my book, The Secrets of the Story, Which Innovative Tools for Perfecting Your Fiction and Captivating Readers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we'll just keep going with that. And, and also, if you do want notes uh, for your own novel, then uh, feel free to contact me through the website and we can arrange for that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was a good conversation. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.